0: You're listening to Planet Pod, the podcast for everyone who cares about the planet. And today we're in Bristol, and I'm delighted to be joined. Around the table, by five very powerful vocal women who have a lot to say, so we're in for a really interesting conversation today. I have Jane Stevenson, who's chair of the Bristol Food Network. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. Sarah Venn, who runs Incredible Edible Bristol. Sarah, welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, Dr. Angela Raffle from the University of Bristol, who also has a public health remit. Angela, welcome. Hello. Jennifer Best, who is director and co owner of Poco, the Tapas Bar, which is just one sustainable restaurant of the year, again. (laughs) So, welcome, Jen. Hi. And Heather Mack, who runs Feedback, which is around food waste and food scarcity. So, welcome, Heather.
1: Hi.
0: So, as you can see, a bumper clop of um, guests and conversations. And we're really talking about sustainable cities, sustainable food cities. Um, how we ensure that food comes into our supply chain and is not wasted and what we can all do as citizens and campaigners and vocal advocates for food fairness um, across both this city and other cities. But I'd really like to start, if I may, um, with you, Angela, because I think you have some very strong views about this, but you also have a very good historical perspective of where the campaign in Bristol came from around Bristol being a sustainable food city. So can you just
1: tell us how we got to this point here in Bristol? So it's always easiest to start with yourself because that's what you know about. So I moved to Bristol in 1985. I'm a medic by background. My working life was all to do with cancer and tobacco control and end-of-life care. And then I got involved in something called the Transition Movement, which has a rather wonderful philosophy, which is we need to use head, heart and hands. We need to start with ourselves. If If we wait for government, it'll be too late.
0: And is that what's driven things like the Transition Towns? Mm -hmm. Is it that's linked? So we all know about
1: Totnes as being a kind of glaring example of that. And actually Bristol had some wonderful sustainability groups going on locally way before the Transition movement Um, and for me food was, uh, I felt that was very difficult territory, I didn't really understand it, Um, but with a bunch of neighbours I helped start the White Ladies Road Farmers and Fair Trading Market which is now ten years old and going strong. And that got me interested because I was meeting these farmers and producers and it struck me that actually our food system is designed around more money-changing hands. So we've effectively, without asking anybody if that's what they want, created a system which doesn't care about the natural world, doesn't care about human health, doesn't care about fair livelihoods, doesn't care about every child growing up well-nourished. And I just wasn't happy with that. So I got more and more involved, helped with something called Who Foods Bristol. I spend about half my life now as a volunteer at the community farm, which is a community supported agriculture project, which is based on the premise that there's no point talking to people about the food system. Just open a farm and let people come there and let people help grow stuff. And then they go, oh, my God, everything on my plate. Do I know who grew it? Do I know if it was Romanian children freezing to death in English fields? to give me cheap food. Um, And some of the food you you look on, you go, I I don't even know what this is made of. Looks like it's come straight from a chemical factory. Mm -hmm. So that's what got me involved. So, So for you, food is very much
0: a social justice issue, isn't it? It isn't just about provenance and
1: sustainability, it's about access to good quality food for everybody. Good food for everybody, yes. And what I found was I bumped into this incredible array of activists in Bristol, and what we wanted to do was help everybody all stand on one platform. So there was a lot of divide and rule by the business-as-usual brigade, and so we came up with what we mean by good food is tasty, healthy, affordable, good for nature, good for workers, good for animal welfare, and good for local businesses. And that meant instead of everybody fighting about what's the right thing to do everybody went I'll do what I love and we'll all do it together
0: okay I guess some people would say well that's easy someone like Bristol because it's a uh you know it's quite a connected quite it's quite a connected city you know it has a reputation of being quite trendy it was green capital back in 2015 you know i mean perhaps more cynical listeners will say well that's fine for bristol but for the rest of us that would be impossible you couldn't get everybody having that kind of conversation you couldn't get everybody engaged there's huge political drivers to to keep food cheap and keep that supply chain going so how would you counter those kinds of arguments
1: i don't ever counter arguments i just listen to people <laughs> And if people are cynical, I say, why do you think people can't change? Could you change? If people are sceptical, I say, I like scepticism. It's been really, really, really hard in Bristol. And we've only scratched the surface. We still have an incredibly unsustainable food system. And people are kind of waking up, you know, what kind of a food system do we want? And we have a choice, each of us, every day, with every meal we choose. So i just listen to people and say, well, what's tricky in your city? What would help you? Uh, And it's been really difficult here. And what helps us is remembering none of us is alone. And what are we on this earth for? And do we really want a food system that's going to take us to arm again? So what
0: have been some of the real challenges then? I mean, have they been from local authority? Have they been from business? Have they been from, you know, uh, just regular customers, people trying to get access to what they consider to be cheap, affordable food? Where have the really big problems
1: come from? There's so many. Um, You can say the hardest landscape to change is the mind. And I think the rhetoric of big food is so powerful. And what it does is it manages to make anybody who's standing up saying, I care about good food, it manages to sneer at you, belittle what you're doing, try and make you not believe in yourself. Um, it spins all kinds of what are called firecracker arguments that actually set the activists against each other, you know, like a circular firing squad. So there's, a, there's a, been huge challenges around that mindset thing. And then there's also a lot of stuff that's really set in concrete in the infrastructure. So the entire food production and supply system now is taken into corridors owned by multinational corporations. So the marketplaces, the wholesale markets, the delivery van services that serve local independent food businesses have all but disappeared. So there is no local infrastructure and the whole legal machinery and the kind of business machinery around that supporting independence has vanished. And it's probably, I mean, we. If you look at what's happening in South America, you've still got small, mixed, family-run farms that have been there for thousands of years. We lost that more than a thousand years ago. So there isn't the living memory. So to create a really agroecological food system in the UK, you're almost having to invent it from scratch, and that's hard.
0: Mm. We have to rethink that whole relationship, don't we? And that's partly what, what Sustainable Bristol, the food Sustainable Food Bristol, is all about, isn't it, Jane? I mean, it's that idea of bringing both action and policy and planning together. And the network that, that you chair has been tackling some of those issues that, that we've just been hearing about.
2: Um, yes, we are in Bristol. We are a member of the Sustainable Food Cities Network. Um, there are about fifty-five cities across the country that, that take part in that. And in 2016 we successfully put evidence forward for a silver award. So there are two cities in the country that are at silver, it's ourselves and Brighton and Hove. And we've both been persuaded of the merits of working towards being a gold sustainable food city. So we've been we've been looking at what would that mean, what would what would a reasonable achievement be? That's both attainable and wouldn't immediately be uh, laughed down by what sustainable
0: food cities call the Daily Mail test. Hmm. So, who who gives you the sustainable food city award? I mean, is this an umbrella group? Um, It's 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 not a quango. No, it's it's a
2: collaboration between the Soil Association, Sustain, and Food Matters. Okay,
0: so people who are leading in this field, respectable yes. organisations, <laughs> yes. opinion we value and yes. treasure. Yeah. And what does it actually mean to be a sustainable food city? And give us some kind of live um, examples of what that looks well, like.
2: Okay, so for, for our silver evidence, we presented um, reports from 123 different organisations and projects across the city, all of whom have done a bit to contribute towards change. So in Bristol, there's we'd say there's no, nobody's leading on this, but there's a whole groundswell of different organisations who've been taking part. And what the Sustainable Food Cities framework allows you to do is to show
0: that we're all working to shared goals. Okay, and who? I mean, so in terms of the organisations you've been working with, would it be restaurants like the one that Jen runs, for it, example? It would be. And um, so we're, we're looking at gold now, and
2: we've been we've been working on this. For quite a long time, about about what we would want to, what change we want to see in the city, and we're we're focusing on what they're calling areas of excellence. So, what would you have to do to make two areas of excellence in the city that would really stand out, and you could you could hold them up and say, "Yes, Bristol has made great progress on these." Uh, We're looking at two things. One's around catering and procurement, so that would be working with restaurants and uh, the the really large scale buyers in the city. So we're. Getting Bristol to, to put its money where its mouth is to say this is this is the change we want to see and that get that volume of local and organic and more sustainable supply into those um, into those systems. The other thing we're looking at is, is something that Heather's going to be talking about later, which is, is food waste. How can we um, both stop that avoidable food waste or the edible food going into being effectively treated as rubbish and how can we uh, look at reducing the amount that's going at the other end, that's genuine food waste,
0: um, and treat it in a in a more environmentally responsible way. Because waste is a major problem in the food industry, isn't it? I mean, it must be a problem in a restaurant environment, but it's also a problem in the general food industry, isn't it? And, you know, we were talking a few minutes ago before we came on air about, about the pumpkin, the pumpkin issue, and the fact that that so many, you know, edible Products are going in the bin just because people have carved their pumpkin out and you know, chucked them the bit away, but also because we don't see some things as food. I mean that's something that you've been wrestling with, isn't it, Heather? I mean, you were telling me you had how many tonnes of pumpkins you wanted to get rid of? So my colleague um, in the south So I run the gleaning network here in the
3: west of England. We have gleaning networks around the country. That's all about rescuing surplus food or food that was going to go to waste on farms. We take teams of volunteers out. Things that wouldn't have even been harvested or make it to the supermarket because it doesn't fit the cosmetic standards or because there's not a market for it at the moment. We picked nine tonnes of pumpkins, they're all palletised, but we are struggling to find a home for these pumpkins. They're perfectly edible, but people think
0: of pumpkins as something that you carve, not something that you eat. Yeah. And the gleaning network, now I haven't heard of that Now gleaning is a term that my mother used to use But in the walks would go out and glean corn for her, you know, her bantams So people are going out and picking up waste food in farms
3: Yeah, we are revitalising the old habit of gleaning There's a lot of crops left on farms um, all across the country so, And there's a lot of will to go and rescue that food And then make sure it's being distributed to those who need it
0: and that's being welcomed by farmers. You've got support from from farmers. I mean, is it only small local farmers who are doing this? Because I mean, I'm thinking about some of those big agriculture agri businesses where they've got thousands of acres. Mm-hmm. may not welcome. People it's to often it's
3: base. often the big farmers. I think it's quite upsetting to businesses and farmers to see what's being wasted. Um, we also another part of the work that we do is to campaign between farmers and supermarkets and try and stand up for the rights of farmers and those producing food um, and try and change the attitudes of those buying food in the supermarkets. So a few years ago we had a lot of success around cauliflowers, It's deemed that the cauliflowers that year were too small and the supermarkets so were not going to buy them. We got a lot of media coverage of all these cauliflowers going to waste. Um, and two major supermarkets then turned around and started buying them. So we are we are helping out the food system. It's not just about redistributing, it's about rebalancing the food system and finding where it's going wrong and making sure that we kick it back into the food is actually being consumed.
0: Yeah, and I think part of the problem, isn't it, that is that we've lost touch with what is and isn't edible and what food should look like so we've been forced and I think you probably agree with this actually we've been forced by the big suppliers particularly in supermarkets to see food as only something that comes in a certain shape and color and size and there's always criticism of the EU that they insist that we have these types of bananas and these types of cucumbers but actually that's not true a lot of that has come from supermarkets hasn't it um, and and the push to say you know it must look this it must look this length this colour this shape you know and now we're being sold things that are misshapen well food is food it doesn't actually matter too much what it looks like on the outside it's what it tastes like on the inside isn't it
3: one of the things we're talking about at the moment is the move from being food consumers to food citizens at the moment we are treated as consumers we buy what supermarkets what people sell to us and market to us whereas actually we can be citizens. Um, and we can make informed and conscious choices about what we buy and realise when we're being sold we've even sold mistreatment, that that's still a supermarket
0: making mm. that decision. So we need to take that control of what is being grown for us and what we're eating. Um, I absolutely agree and I want to pick up on that in a minute but I just want to go back to this idea, How do you, when you've gleaned, what do you do with what it is that you've gleaned? Because part of the problem is about a relatively speedy distribution chain, isn't it? Because Although I think that, you know, we've all got things that are probably moulding the bottom of our veg rack that we would eat um, because, you know, they're there and why would you waste them? We may not choose to put those into the distribution system. So how do you get that system working so that food gets from the farm to somebody who needs it in a relatively short space of time?
3: We work with Fairtrade, an amazing organisation for doing this. They have a distribution network across the entire country. They will pick it up from the farms, take it to their local depots, and get it out to
0: charities and their partners who need it. Because okay, one of my big things about um, food banks as well is that whenever you look at food banks, they're nearly all tin-based, aren't they? Everybody puts the in packets and tins. And I'm thinking, you know, if you needed to go to a food bank, presumably your heart sinks and you've got another packet of pasta and another tin of tomatoes. I mean, we should be getting fresh food into those food bank systems, shouldn't we? Yeah, and
3: I think that causes that poses a challenge in terms of just the distribution that has to be done speedily. It takes a lot of resource to do that. Um, With his welfare care
0: have fit in and they're now doing a fantastic job of getting it out there That was fantastic um, Can I just come back to this point about the restaurant I mean, Jen, how do you tackle this? Because you know, you POCO have won sustainable restaurant Congratulations um, What is it that you're doing that makes you sustainable and how are you tackling some of the issues that, 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 that you've know we've just been talking about? Mm, I'm just thinking about what Heather was saying about becoming
4: food citizens rather than food consumers and part of our responsibility in the restaurant is to change that conversation with our suppliers and our growers rather than saying this is what I need to order you're saying what do you need to sell what do you need to get rid of what have you got got of that I can buy from you because frankly we can one of the things we do well is making delicious food so if there's a lot of something that we can buy from somebody then we'd love to take it And if it's helping our suppliers and it's thinking about not as a business transaction but it's it's more about sort of helping the local economy Sure, on an, on an economics side, but also in terms of its food security, its um, the environment environmental protection
0: Mm. we've lost that seasonality thing haven't we i mean that idea that you have a crop all year round so you can have you know strawberries on christmas day and 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 Mm -hmm. if you lose the seasonality you lose the ability to say what's fresh in the market today what is there a glut of you know it's a good year for x let's make you know this kind of pie or this kind of soup we've lost we've lost touch with that haven't we
4: yes definitely i think supermarkets have lots of answer for in that respect i think we've got used to having an enormous amount of freedom and variety in our shopping baskets um but I think we need to get down to the understanding and just get used to the idea of the limitation of our local natural resources what can we grow at this climate, this time of year and really learning about how to make the most of those ingredients um, and this is where the veg box schemes are brilliant because you just get delivered exactly what um, if, you, if you choose a local seasonal veg box you, you, make, um, you get used to getting creative with those recipes just like chefs do when they
0: buy local seasonal food do you think part of the problem is, is around education as yes. well? I mean, I know you run a network for, for, for young women, particularly to get them into the kind of whole issue of, of green and food and mm-hmm. sustainability, but do you think it goes back deeper than that? It's about encouraging people to learn to cook mm-hmm. seasonally and use the right ingredients and, you know, because that, that's quite a challenge. Mm,
4: I think the curriculum needs to change to include education and food for sure. I think thinking back to when I was a girl, I think the only kitchen session I had was making cheese straws and that put me off cooking for a long time because I thought it was disgusting <laughs> um, but Not really really, but
0: food source are they no cheese straws? <laughs>
4: not really no. <laughs> um, I think we need to show the children show our children how what, I mean, what you can be pulling out of the soil take them to places where food is grown and get them to understand what a beetroot looks like when it's growing and that when it comes back packed isn't in its natural form we need to understand the transition and, and what kind of hands of Dealt with that beetroot along the way and really get to understand the kinds of people are growing it. Who are they? What they, you know? How how do you access them, and then taking them into the kitchen and cooking with that ingredient, and showing them the possibilities and getting them excited about food? Mm. Um, we certainly lost that, and I think that will that will help to change the food system for the future on a massive scale. That would be
1: mm. a remedy that we need. And to just frowning. <laughs> I always worry when the discourse moves to, well, the trouble is everybody's stupid and needs educating. And actually, I would see it very differently. As, I mean, we do lots of work with children at the community farm, and look some of the evidence we put in the silver award was about amazing stuff people like Joe Engelbe are doing with children. If you allow children to play around with fresh food, they are so creative. And if you enable them to see where it's grown, they would say, just like Jen says, why aren't we eating what you grow? And the deep, deep, deep problem is that in law, food is only a commodity. There is nothing that says the purpose of our food system should be to look after the soil, look after the farmers, look after the farmland birds, look after our beautiful landscape. 75% of land in the UK is farmland. The 2016 State of the Nature report said we are the most nature-depleted country in the world. And that is because of our agricultural systems. So I just feel uncomfortable when we don't even look at how we design a system and what the purpose is and we say, well, let's just educate everybody about seasonality you know, and blame the children for choosing the wrong things or being so ignorant. See what I mean? No, I think it's. I
0: think you're absolutely right. I think it's a question of educating people about all of us, allowing ourselves to be educated about that whole system, and the, not just you know how you cook, but where food comes from and what food looks like with that. And you know, as a passionate you know food grower myself, there's nothing like something you've just picked from your own garden and you eat it. In fact, you sometimes don't even need to cook it; do you? you can eat all mm-hmm. of these things raw. Um, but I think that we've lost. We have lost touch with that, and I think for a lot of people, for a lot of people who listen to podcasts, who are busy by definition, and probably don't have the connection with an outdoor growing space, you know, their food reliance is on a pre-packed something in the supermarket, something that comes in plastic, usually, that has long since Mm. lost the smell and the taste of the soil. So it's how do we how do we create that? I say how do we give people opportunities? How do we create that movement for change? And and I will come back to your point really uh, uh, that you were saying about the. Jane, about the whole kind of Daily Mail test, a lot of people say, well, it's easy if you've got lots of, you know, you've got a sustainable restaurant and you've got, you know, a, a city where there's space to grow things. You know, if you're living in a very intensely urban area, you're far more likely to have a fast food net um, shop in your, in your immediate vicinity than you are a greengrocer. So, so how do we break down some of those prejudices and, prejudice and barriers to actually create this change? Because that's what we need, don't we? We need a movement. This is about creating a movement for change. That's not just local, but that's national and global. So I'm afraid that I sent the email out this morning to a whole group
2: of people, asking them, "Can we get together to talk about that? That question." <laughs> so we need, it. we need a campaign for, for going for gold in the city that will um, gather people together and, and make people uh, help people realize why it's important and it would be a great thing for the city. But I don't have the answer today.
0: So the Daily Mail test? <laughs> no, the,
2: the, the sustainable food is usually the, use the Daily Mail test as okay. So you're a gold standard sustainable food city. How can you say that when dot dot dot? Yeah. So they encourage us to look at those uh, those things that will, will challenge uh, our assertion that, that we've
1: done good in the city. Yeah. And the award is only for moving towards. It is. It I mean, doesn't it, say yeah. that in any way you're a sustainable food city. And no. uh, London's got silver as well. We yeah. It has, but city yeah. of London, which is yeah. a slightly different category. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, it's, it's
0: a recognition of your progress and your journey, isn't yeah. it? Rather than you have got there, but but I mean, I think the, one of the issues that that you know we've been thinking about on the podcast is is the whole issue of um, the sustainable development goals and you know the 17 global goals and and goal two is about ending hunger. And I think that a lot of people are not probably aware of just quite how much food insecurity there is in the UK. And this isn't something, when you think about ending hunger in a global context, you'd probably think about the developing world. You wouldn't necessarily think about the the streets of Bristol or or the streets of Liverpool. But the amount of food insecurity and food poverty is absolutely shocking, isn't it? I mean, I think it's between 8.3 million households facing insecurity on a regular basis around food. And... And and that's something we've got to build into that network and that system as well, isn't it? About sustainable change and distribution and supply and access. You're listening to Planet Pod, brought to you by Acula Management and The Planet Mark. Do get in touch with us. You can tweet at planet underscore pod or visit the website theplanetpod.com where you can subscribe to The Pod and download earlier episodes. But I, I really wanted to, um, to talk a little bit about Incredible Edible because part of what we've been talking about is the fact that you haven't got the access to the growing space. But I think that Incredible Edible Bristol, Sarah, your organisation, has actually given people access to grow things where they wouldn't normally be able to grow them. Is, is that right?
5: <laughs> well, we haven't given them access. We've given them the skills and the support that they need to be able to access that land themselves so quite i mean the way we work is we wait for a community to come to us and they come to us and they whisper very in a very kind of scared manner we've got an idea and we've we've seen this piece of land and we'd like to make some change and generally are pieces of land that are covered in grotty horrible stuff nappies needles, all the detritus of living in a city um so these are public bits of land all public pieces of land so okay. yeah. Um, and and we work with them in whatever way they need so they might need help to find out who that land belongs to they might need help to speak to somebody about how they get access to that land they might, they might have already done all that they might just need some horticultural support they might need volunteer support what, whatever they need we support them to create that thing what we don't do is we don't throw money at them we work with them to to actually look at a more sustainable future. So if you're a community group and there's five of you and you live in a, in a street and you've got this piece of land across the road, actually, can you just all put a tenner your, from your pockets into this project and can we just look at what that can achieve in the first instance before we go crazy creating con- constitutions and bank accounts and all of that stuff? Let's just actually do what it is that you're setting out to do, which is just making yourself a better landscape to live in.
0: But the idea is, this isn't kind of urban guerrilla gardening, is it? No. But this, the idea is creating food produce from those pieces of land. Yes. It, isn't, it isn't the kind of you know just planting them with flowers and.
5: Well, it's about not creating. Aren't
0: for bees and things.
5: Yeah, it's about creating a sustainable, edible landscape. So okay. that might not look like rows of lettuces because rows of lettuces take quite a lot of time and effort to look after. And often one of the things that people don't have is time. So, you know, we look at what that looks like. So we probably plant more trees and fruit bushes than we do anything else because actually those are sustainable. They work with people's time scales. Okay. Um, yeah, so so it's not, it's not about... Yeah, it's not about creating a city that looks like a farm. It's about looking at what an edible landscape really is and how that fits in with people's lives sustainably.
0: And there's no issue with using land that's publicly owned. The council don't... I mean, how how do you manage all of those kind of... Because this sounds to me like a potentially
5: politically quite difficult thing to achieve. Um, I suppose it could be. I mean... It it isn't because we have key people at the council that we go and speak to and we may have key people that we don't. Um, But we, yeah, I mean, you know, it's that thing, isn't it, where actually, to start with, the council were terrified. They were terrified. They thought we were going to try and grow cabbages all over the city and that, you know, it would be a complete and utter disaster. It wouldn't work. It would look awful. Um, My background is in horticulture and actually my deep Feeling is that, as well as all of this food stuff, we need to be looking at what our cities look like and how they play into our need for nature and all of that conversation. Um, so we're not, you know, we, what we what we tend to say to them is, you know, most of these pieces of land are tiny. You, you know, they are literally just that little bit of land at the end of a street that that generally is covered in somebody's old football boots and you, you know, and you could plant. A tree and three blackcurrant bushes and that would be it um, but we don't just plant food, we do also plant food for pollinators so we acknowledge the fact that we are not the only population on the planet and that we also have to be looking at feeding the bees feeding the pollinators, feeding whatever it is that needs feeding within
1: mm-hmm.
5: within our world in order to make our, our food system more sustainable at one no point way. somebody said to me that Bristol City Centre is at peak bee okay. Okay, so it's actually doing something... Meaning like there, isn't the food, there isn't enough food, there isn't enough yeah, forage for the bees that, that are in the city And does that then translate Because it everybody's to going, oh, okay. let's put okay. a, a so bee on, on our roof. And wider, thinking about where the the are, are those bees going to eat? It, it so actually, you know, we do quite a lot of work around that, which is quite useful. Because So at Incredible Edible, we believe in the power of small actions. That's our That's our thing. So, so for sure if, if that's all people can cope with then that's fine of course because they've made some change they've done something that's different but i think what we have to acknowledge is that once you do one thing it's a roller coaster and so you go i'm just going to go and help with that community project and and then you then you start looking at the way you live your life and suddenly you know that you've picked an apple from a tree you're probably not going to go and buy an apple from Tesco's ever again you know all of that stuff so I think it's it's almost it's the beginning of a roller coaster for people so you you know some people come and they their focus is generally just on that piece of land and the fact that it's a mess and they want to do something with it some people come with really heavy you know we want to change the world things and and I am that person I want to change the world
0: and are there others of you around the country? Are there in, incredible there are edible Birmingham? There are 120
5: um, groups across, right. the, across the country and 800 worldwide. Um, some are tiny little villages, one in, encapsulates an entire country. So yeah, it's a huge and growing movement. Okay. And do you
0: think that's helping, even if you're not growing something edible on no. that patch, well, obviously that would
5: be your, your, your
0: primary focus. Is that helping change people's relationship with food, picking up what Heather was saying? Because, I mean, actually, really, if we're going to stop the food waste thing, we all have responsibilities for that, don't we? We can't just blame the supermarkets, fun as it is, just to give them a bashing. We have to take responsibility for some
5: of those behaviours and attitudes ourselves, don't we? It definitely changes people's thoughts around land use. And I think that's the beginning of the conversation around food. Um, you, You know, we don't do anything until we've looked at the soil. And, and you know that's something that I hold really important, because actually it's the bedrock of everything that we we do in life without soil, we are nothing um, so So you know that again is that beginning of that conversation around looking at things in a slightly different way. Right. Mm what would you say to people about their own attitudes
0: to food and food waste? I mean, how can we change that conversation and that dialogue? It's understanding that it all has a
3: value. This is part of the, um, what are we doing Going for Gold Attempt is, is looking at this sort of public campaign. How, how do we get more people thinking about what do they waste at home and why do they waste it? And how can they just change their behaviours in a small way in terms of how they're shopping, in terms of where they're storing things in the back of their fridge and do they know what's there? Um, tonight I've got a big event at one of the universities Just exploring some of those ideas of how do you talk to students, how do you talk to young people, how do you train people's habits around food and also and just really valuing every piece of food more than just perhaps what it costs mm-hmm. in terms of actual money, but it costs a lot of other things. What does it cost the environment? What sort of
0: land use was needed for that item of food? And therefore we could be looking after it and making the most of it a huge amount of the food waste is actually domestic, isn't it? It isn't, it isn't necessarily in the chain further up, isn't it? in the supermarkets, isn't in the distribution? Yeah,
3: a, a large amount of it's domestic and it is in some ways more difficult because there are more more people, more decision makers to reach out to. So there is work happening with supermarkets, there is work happening with farmers, um, changing the hearts and minds of everyone in the UK to
0: to. Change their shopping habits and their eating habits. It's a tall order. Yeah, yeah. But restaurants have a huge role to play in that as well, don't they? I mean, and how do you manage, um, Jen, that problem of food waste in a in a restaurant environment? Because you can't always predict how many people are going to come through the door every night. So,
4: yeah, that's an ongoing challenge day to day. I suppose we're quite lucky in the sense that we're quite small, so we can't actually order too much food. We have to sell what we have in our fridges each day and order things fresh because we, we just can't store it. Um, but it is always a challenge to, to predict that. Sometimes you need to run out of the food, and that's what happens. And I think that's that's part of the biggest challenge of that is explaining it to customers who want something and can't have it. We're used to just getting exactly what we want when we when we want it, um, and how to sensitively explain explain that as a, as a service. To say um, I'm so sorry, we couldn't get any fish today because the weather hasn't been good enough. We get all our fish from day boats, etc. Rather than being being a lecture, you're trying to sort of share the experience of of us as
0: a business trying to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Um. But that's about that relationship again, isn't it? Because the thing that things are not available on twenty four hour supply whenever you happen to want them in any Mm -hmm. form. If you're going back to that relationship about you know seasonality and the the, you know food in the food system, you know there are going to be days where there just aren't any fish. Or, there are, you know, or you couldn't get any apples because you know, or whatever it was. You know, there will be days like that. So it's actually how you educate in inverted <laughs> <of> commerce, <laughs> Angela. How you educate people to have a different relationship with with that kind of purchasing relationship. But you're a business and you need to make money. and You need to get customers through the door. So so that must be a double challenge. Maybe. Yeah, certainly. And I think the other sort of element of food waste is also to do with preparation waste as well
4: in the kitchen. How are you dealing with the food that you're pre- preparing, the food that you're cooking? Um and so we adopt a root to tail so root to fruit and nose to tail policy. Um and that means making the most of the whole vegetable, making the most of the whole animal as well. So you're not just buying in sort of fillets of a certain type of meat, you're as as much as we can buying as large a part of the animal that we can and cooking everything down and making the stock with the bones and but we've done things with trotters, pigs' tails,
0: pig's nose, pigs' ears. All sorts. Yeah, there um, used to be a it, phrase when I was a kid that the only thing you waste on a pig is a squeak.
4: Exactly, exactly. And we have lost that. And I think we're just so used to buying things um, in separate bits and packaging and that kind of thing. And I think that the other part of the challenge is getting over that, that sort of squeamish element of, mm, I don't think I really want to eat awful because it's a bit icky. Um, but presenting it in a really delicious and nutritious way and sort of changing people's perspective on that is... Yeah. is um, something that we have a lot of fun with but obviously sort of treading that line quite sensitively.
0: I really just want to go back to this issue of justice though, social justice, because I think that, 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 you know, and perhaps that's the argument, the Daily Mail argument sorted, is that actually this isn't just an issue for people who possibly have you know, the choices to eat in very good restaurants and have high disposable incomes and can choose to you know, cook and spend time. It's actually about everybody having access to something which is a fundamental right, which is decent quality food you know, statistics around malnutrition in, in the NHS, I think it's something like £12 billion a year treating malnutrition. Now, I was pretty shocked when I read that because I wouldn't normally have thought that we had a problem with malnutrition in the UK. So clearly we do. Something's gone fundamentally wrong. So, so how do we get that shift, that mindset shift with people who are in positions of power, with influence and policy? How do we get people to think
1: about food as a social justice issue? If you look at something like tobacco, so, the first real evidence that the lung cancer epidemic in men was because of cigarette smoking came in the late, came around 1950. And it took till 2005 to say workers should be allowed to breathe air in the workplace which doesn't have 70 card carrying carcinogens in it. And the work we did behind the scenes to get to the point where the public accepted the smoke-free legislation was all about changing culture and listening to Jen, Heather, Sarah, Jane today and yourself we're talking about culture change and we need to understand how we as human beings are put together how our deep, deepest feelings and motivations work and so what we've been doing in Bristol is gently, kindly, lovingly change in the culture. So 10 years ago if you went into a restaurant and asked the staff oh where did this meat come from they would just regard you as a complete nuisance whereas now that's a really all all right question Um, and so a sense of love for the workers, love for the land love for farmland species as a motivation is what can change culture and it's happened starting to happen in Bristol, it's starting to happen all over the world and if people I think if we wait for people in power we'll wait forever and it's it's important to recognise the subtle mass media forces that are being used to kind of make us retreat when actually we're trying to make a change and often they use an argument that oh well it's just ripping you off and actually I had a really good conversation with the man who founded Poco Restaurant. And we were, we were imagining a transparent finances restaurant association. So you, and the same at the community farm. So we show people our books. We show people what we're paying our staff, what we're paying our supporters, what actually the true cost of producing that food. So you're not being ripped off when you choose that. The supermarkets are actually appropriating that genuine heartedness that people have by putting niche, high-end products into the non-price-sensitive customer's Mm. vision. And then they are ripping people off, and that undermines the whole food movement. And we just need to all become a lot more savvy about what's influencing our choices and how we build a culture that is actually based on love for the living world. And your work with students is vital in that respect, isn't it? Because I think
0: students are, you know, those young people who are usually on a tight budget, um, but who are open to, to, you know, to change, culture change, new ways of doing things and hopefully, you know, will be the kind of campaigning voices going forward. I mean, yeah. that's vital, isn't it? Yeah, I
3: think getting people at that young age when they're forming their habits, you know, I'm talking to 18-year-olds who've just moved out of home and they're deciding what they cook and how they cook and where they buy food from and um, working at the University of West England, which is a very environment and getting a lot of support from the university. They are young people who want to be doing good things, the right things. They just don't necessarily know how. And so it's a fantastic opportunity to go and talk about well, where are you buying um, your food from, and what what are you mostly eating, and you know how many vegetables, and how are you storing them,
0: and are you using your leftovers? Things, simple questions like that. Yeah, and encouraging people to cook together as well, mm-hmm. because you know there's an economy of scale, isn't there? And and you know, it's, it, you know, one would hope that students are probably at the point in their lives where they can do that, share you know, cooking together, because it not only saves money, it's also hugely enjoyable, isn't it? And food is about sharing and, as you say, sharing the love, but also sharing the experience of making something together. It's a very sociable activity.
3: So I am um, just starting an event called Come Dine Sustainably. It's like Come Dine with me, <laughs> but you score each other on the sustainability of the meals. We've had the first trial, and I've got another one organised this week, so that's something I want students to start cooking together and start having conversations over dinner about where
0: the food has come from. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, you know, just thinking about the kind of communication mechanisms that young people use, do you think that... Instagram will be a help or a hindrance in that because this passion for taking photographs of your food you must act you all the time Jane in your restaurant yeah. people don't eat it until they've taken half a dozen photographs of it. Um, you know, it, do you think that's going to help because if we could get a kind of sustainable food Instagram going
3: I think that's something we need to do and I don't know much about I have one volunteer who sat at me down last week and said where's the Instagram and so she's taken over <laughs> the one England Feedback Instagram and she's going to be um, covering tonight on Instagram so you let's see that. where it goes but I think you need it needs to be a peer appear um, I think that's what's interesting is you know me, me getting
0: on Instagram when you're saying the students talking to each other. It's that mythical millennial that we need. We always like to end our presents with a call to action so I'm going to ask you all for a call to action for listeners and it's I think it's probably about what can people who are not fortunate enough to live in Bristol even though it's pouring with rain today um, mm-hmm. fabulous city what can they do in their communities to make change so Jane what would you say? Do I think that possibly that that connecting with, with what's
2: happening seasonally. Um, if you don't have a veg box, why not why not do that and get try that for a week, see what's, uh, see what is in season and cook around that. Um, um, there's the surprising amount of things you can do with kale, but, <laughs> but you probably just need to challenge yourself to do it. And pumpkins, yeah. Jen, how about you? What would your call to action be? Um,
4: I guess coming from the perspective of a restaurant, maybe a call to action to get people to hold where hold the people accountable where they are going to eat. So do ask the questions: Where is the meat from? And it's not a nuisance; it's it is a, a important reflective question, and to kind of debunk the um, taboo around a more sustainable uh, purchasing policy being more expensive because you do save money by. Buying local seasonal produce and you're also helping the environment. So asking those questions is very important. Thank
3: you. How about you, um, A very simple one of understanding date labels on food. I think that's one of the biggest steps, easy steps that we can make to waste less food at home. Um, so understanding the date labels and then not being too concerned about if it if it's
5: not dangerous, eat it after its best before date. Yeah, they're advisory, not yep. prescriptive. Sarah. So I think that there is, as Angela says, that all of this media stuff, and you know, and, and I think my, my call to action to anybody is never think you can't make a change. Um, if it's the tiniest change in your life, it will just be the beginning of something. So you know, even if it's something as simple as growing a tomato plant outside your front door and remembering it to water it every day, do that because that's the start of your change.
0: Yeah. we always say on the pod that you, many small steps make great strides and Angela
1: for me what started me Because as a student we were all brown rice and vegetables and then the food industry brought out real men don't eat quiche and brown rice and sandals became a term of abuse and without even realising it as a kind of busy doctor with little children I thought it was beneath me to cook my time was far too important and it was a challenge to actually spend a week only buying stuff from a 100-mile radius, non-packaged. So we did it as a family. And then we went, oh, my God. So what we did was we took our normal supermarket shop. As a family, we sat down, we just looked at every item and went, why on earth are we buying this? And that was the start for us. Yeah, engage that family in that conversation.
0: Thank you all so much. It's been fascinating, and and I hope that um, listeners will take Bristol's example and see if we can roll this out so we have a sustainable food country
1: not just city and lots of cities are doing great stuff already. and lots so of cities really are going to... yeah absolutely to and if you're out there
0: and you're listening and you're from somewhere else that's a city whether you're you know bronze or silver uh, or not even on that journey yet then get in touch because we'd love to talk to you thank you you've been listening to planet pod with my guests jane sarah angela heather and jennifer
5: you've been listening to planet pod brought to you by echel management join us next time when we talk about future smart cities